It's the Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast, Episode 79, Monday, November 27th. It's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Insight and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Joining us today, Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. It's great to be here. Also on the line is Dr. Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome to you. Thanks, Danny. Well, I can kick it off with a, just a thank you to all the listeners that have come back week after week. If you like what you hear, share it with a friend, colleague, or family member. Looking ahead to this week, today, new home sales. New home sales and building permits actually probably bottom in January, been trending up since. Uh, Tuesday, we have the FHFA House Price Index, uh, S&P CoreLogic Case Hiller, or Case Schiller rather, report. Conference Board Consumer Confidence for October, expected to be down. Uh, Wednesday, we got GDP revisions. Uh, you know, at the end of every month, we have GDP reports of, of a first uh, look and revisions and final. This is the revision, expected to be about 4.9%. Thursday, we've got personal income, spending, jobless claims as usual. And then Friday, a, a pretty big one is ISM manufacturing for November, expected to be up point or two from, from October. I was going to interject. You forgot my favorite, which is the beige book, um, <laughs> which actually a lot of people don't on really Tuesday, pay much yeah. attention to that. So that's coming out on Wednesday. We get the oh, was uh, it Fed- Wednesday? Okay. Yeah, the Federal Reserve is going to be releasing the beige book, which is that collection of anecdotes right. uh, from all around the United States, various Federal Reserve districts all that qualitative information. I think it's becoming increasingly important to read that rather boring and lengthy document because it is boring and it is lengthy, but it seems like the Fed is relying a lot more on this anecdotal and qualitative information when it comes to setting monetary policy now. Interesting. You want to kick off with some strengths in the Fed? Yeah, I think one of the strengths from the Fed is just the messaging that we have been getting from them. We got the Federal Reserve minutes showing that it was a unanimous decision that the Fed should proceed carefully. And so one of the ways in which I interpret that is that there's a fairly high bar for them to start hiking. Uh, They've been on pause since the end of July. We've been calling this the Powell pause, and that's been a rather beneficial thing, I think, to sentiment overall in the markets. It's one of the maybe reasons we've seen yields come down, 10-year Treasury going from above 5% down to you know, around 45 or so. S&P 500 rallied on that news as well, that we've got this Powell pause. And if it's unanimous, I think that's very healthy. Now, obviously, you do have skeptics, and I think they always want to interject a little uncertainty into it because they don't know what they're going to do. But when it comes to looking for strength, I think that's maybe one of the biggest strengths out there right now is that if the Fed is on pause, that they maybe don't want to do too much more damage. Um, I I know another strength that kind of caught my eye just because I love following international politics. Um, Argentina, they elected a libertarian president. That has been a really fascinating thing to follow. He has promised some sort of what he has called a shock therapy for the economy, all sorts of radical changes, um, including getting rid of their central bank. So uh, basically saying, let's dollarize. And, you know, if you kind of think about it, they have 140, 180 percent inflation. One of the real quick ways to slam the brakes on that inflation is just to adopt another country's currency. 
You know, I wrote a paper on dollarization of another Latin American country and a recommendation, and actually a couple of years later they did, not off my recommendation, but the, it's, it's exactly right when inflation's running super high, and that's one of the, the pieces of his platform was that dollarization. Uh, they get their cues from what the dollar, Argentine peso dollar rate is in the black market. The other question we don't need to get into it is, do they have the money to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, if I might... Uh, Pick it up from there, we got a strength in some retail. Dick's Sporting Goods popped after positive comparable sales, hiked guidance. Uh, Burlington stores rose on a strong start to November. It's probably a good segue into weaknesses when we talk about retail sales. But from my observations, retail sales, the consensus is it's probably, it's going to be, I think the best word is decent. A little under or below average possibly, you know, we've had Best Buy a sliding on uneven demand forecast, Kohl's shares falling even after profits beat. NVIDIA fell on some disappointing guidance, but revenue growth was strong and stock was up 242%. You know, an, an interesting thing I might add with NVIDIA, and a lot to talk about there, but not enough time, expectations, are they too high? You know, and earnings estimates after earnings, you know, quarter after quarter, they're being raised. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get this feeling like back in 99 when, you know, a lot of companies were going through that, but the valuations were excessive in 99. The valuation Jason and I, Jason Cooper and I, we go back and forth and slicing and being conservative on the estimates, and it still comes in at a decent valuation, Hmm. despite how much it's gone up. The caveat to that, uh, which would be for later, would be that, you know, you can have a great company like Cisco, I think, of a 99, and it's going gangbusters, but if the end users start having problems, then... Cisco or, or in today's world, NVIDIA may start having problems. Go you ahead. mentioned Cisco. Um, they were actually in the news a couple of weeks ago as well when they released earnings. And, uh, you know, NVIDIA took, I think, a lot of the attention of investors. But Cisco right. was one of the earlier ones. And they had actually done pretty poorly in terms of, I think, one big customer, their inventory management. So I think what you just said there is an incredibly important point as far as the end user demand for it, right? So you saw this issue with Cisco, with their report, some big end user, they're going through some inventory management thing. And so that's affected Cisco. Maybe, you know, what's kind of your take with NVIDIA as far as end user demand there, especially with the sanctions, you know, U.S. sanctions against China. I think they just recently, NVIDIA said they might have to delay something with one of their new chips. Correct. But there's a lot of momentum there. It's just, uh, you know, I think the concern for investors is when do they disappoint? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you get the sense that the the share price is peakish. I think it's just a lull. Our equity strategies are more buy and hold. So, you know, holding a company for eight years, Mm -hmm. you know, what is a quarter? What is a lull? Uh, you know, it's going to, the share price is going to follow that path of earnings growth anyway. Uh, and yes, sometimes it's negative, sometimes positive. So it helps to, you know, a lot of the, the news is, 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 just, is just that. It's just noise, more or less. We could talk about that all day. But let me just finish out this. The existing home sales fell in October. A little bit of, of a negative surprise on top of a negative trend. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it has implications for rent rental charges going up, rents going up. It's probably, in my opinion, it's got to be bottoming in here somewhere because mortgage rates are coming down off their peaks. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I got to tell you, I go back, and this just sounds kind of nerdy. And I used to dump research reports I was going to throw away anyway in professors' mailboxes, and they thought it was the greatest thing. And I'm like, you know, you know, take, take, <laughs> take all that stuff with a grain of salt. You go back to the end of 22, and you're looking at just uh, deteriorating existing home sales and, and home sales in general. Yet you got a D.H. Horton and a home builders rallying quite a bit. So many of those news headlines were actually not very insightful as where the share prices were going on the companies in those particular industries. Mm -hmm. so, I've been talking to a lot of home builders lately and also realtors just to get a feel for what's going on with uh, different markets. And really, you know, with real estate, it's all about location, 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 right? I mean, those are the three primary things. So it really depends on where you are. But with so many people locked into their mortgages, you have this almost dearth of inventory with existing home sales. And so new home sales, they're benefiting from it in the sense that if you can't find an existing home because people don't want to give up their 3% mortgage. And actually, I think the numbers are most recently from FHFA that something like around 20% of homeowners have mortgage rates that are like below 4%. And then you look at the number of people who have it that it's above 6% and it's de minimis. It's super small, but right. it is growing because people do still need to move. They have job changes, lifestyle changes, right. things like that. And so they do eventually move. So it's almost like this slow bleed as far as people getting inventory back onto the market in the existing home area. But home builders have benefited, provided they can find the lots, the developable land. And I think that's one of the big issues. You have zoning restrictions. So the ability to build, say, in Texas versus California, huge difference in terms of their right. attitude and laws as it relates to development. One last one I'd mention, uh, dollar weakness. And you say dollar weakness, dollar's been really strong. Dollar's actually been weak relative to Bitcoin and gold. And I, I say that because, as you know, Brian, and, and Brian and I, I don't know if Danny, if you know this, but we were classmates in grad school. Um, Brian used to get picked on in the playground and always, you know, help him out. Yeah, Todd would come um, run into my rescue. It was awesome. He'd, he'd be the guy. Is, that's right. <laughs> right. But he would steal my lunch money then. That's the only yeah, that's a fair right. exchange. It's a fair exchange, yeah. So what I was going to say about the dollar relative to Bitcoin, the Bitcoin's up 125%. That was another article at the end of 22 that said something to the effect that crypto had a bad year in 22, expect more and worse in 23, and it didn't, just didn't happen. But the point of that is the commodity, you know, gold and, and bitcoins and, and that gold was always listed with the commodities. And the currencies were listed next to commodities whenever you, now it's not that case anymore. Anybody looks in the newspaper for that, but for many, many, many years, you always had the currencies with the commodities. And it was because of that gold connection. And, and, and I, you know, if Bitcoin was, you know, if you still had people looking at Wall Street Journal and the commodity prices and currencies and that, you'd probably have Bitcoin in there as well. But, but uh, there's weakness there. And the dollar's turned a little weaker since then. I just want to throw in this last weakness just to keep going here quick. Treasury's downgraded AAA to AA plus back in 2011 by S&P, recently downgraded by Fitch. I always I asked the question, you ever think that the risk-free rate isn't so risk-free, which might explain why credit spreads have not widened more than they, they should. In fact, they're not widened at all. 
really they're they're you know probably average I think is about 500 basis points, sitting at 400. Uh, in bad times, you're looking at as wide as 900. So there might be something to that. Why don't we move on to opportunities? I would say that some of the biggest opportunities is that everybody seems to have bought into the narrative that we're going to be having a soft landing, which implies that we're going to have slower economic growth. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Where maybe there's an opportunity is do earnings also have to follow the economy? Because the S&P is not the same thing as GDP. So some disconnect between the economy and earnings perhaps can persist and continue to create like a wall of worry for the market to climb. So I think maybe that's one of the things. And if you think about, even if we do get slowing growth of earnings, you know, in economics, if something becomes more scarce, it should command a premium. The price typically goes up, provided that it's something that people still want. And so if growth is becoming more scarce, is that going to create an environment in which some of these companies that are like go-go growth a lot of their value maybe comes from not present operations, but future opportunities. Does that create an opportunity there for investors to kind of think about maybe it's not so much about value or maybe the value is in the growth of the company's earnings? You know, you phrased that really well because I said, I think a couple of months ago on a SWAT that, you know, growth becomes scarce, becomes a crowded trade. Everybody starts heading toward growth as the economy slows down. And that you know takes you to tech, and and mm-hmm. I, I always thought that the American exceptionalism is in tech, mm-hmm. and and it continues to be because there's a lot of innovation there. For example, generative AI, it's transformative, has benefits explicitly or directly to a, to an Nvidia, Oracle, etc., and indirectly across the industries. The amount of value a company gets from AI, you know, you think. Brian, remember the productivity and growth that came out of the internet revolution mm-hmm. at the end of the '90s was was huge. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. it was something similar to railroads in the late 1900s. This I don't think is that great. It it, it can get overhyped, but it sh- certainly still has benefits. You know, you get the values is in the operational efficiencies mm-hmm. yep. for those non. AI type companies. Well, and if you remember from the technology revolution in the 90s, in the late 80s, I think it was Paul Romer had talked about how computers, the computer age was showing up everywhere except for in the productivity statistics. It's only because Hmm. you had to wait an extra five years, right? (laughs) And that it it took the adoption. But then a lot of the benefits aren't necessarily going to only be captured by the manufacturers of the chips, the developers of the algorithms. It's the end user as far as those different companies. Maybe they're in industrials. Maybe they're in home building. Maybe they're in retail. Who knows which sector they're in? It could be in art. Yes, absolutely. And it's anywhere in this case there's a behavioral application and large language models, you'll hear that term. And it's not just law firms, but biotech data. Any company that has some database, more or less, um, in, in biotech, you've got these protein language models. I find, I mean, my daughter's uh, getting her PhD in, in molecular biology. <laughs> I can hardly pronounce it. But, um, you know, you treat diseases like pancreatic cancers, areas that had been previously undruggable, you would say, but we focus on those companies. We'll see it show up in the margins. You'll see the, the, the companies that gain that edge in that operational efficiency, again, showing up 
in the margins. And we I got a little bit more to talk about that later, but we'll just stay on track here. As far as other opportunities, I, if you want to jump in, feel free. But I see opportunities emerging market that we talk about bonds. And I, I've said in the past, bonds have a great risk adjusted return. Mm-hmm. So as a rule of thumb, if interest rates fell 1%, bond prices go up 10%, down one, up 10 in bond price. It may not be that pronounced. If you felt bond yields fall a half a percent, then it would imply that bond prices go up 5%. But 5% on top of 5%, that's 10%. Mm-hmm. You know, so looking ahead, if you have rates coming down, now some have suggested a couple major uh, brokerage firms that Fed funds rates by the end of 24 would be in the 275 area. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've heard any anything different, but the long end maintains that level and probably drops a bit, mm-hmm. but it normalizes the yield curve. But that drop a bit might be a half a percent, and there's your appreciation bonds. And I've said it before that you might have a single bad year in bonds followed by really good year in bonds. For that reason, I said at the end of uh, last month, if the bond, if the year ended today, you'd have three straight years of negative returns in the bond market. It's unprecedented. Mm-hmm. But what follows that is is really good returns in bonds. Now, I would say, just because I don't want to sound like a broken record, I'd say look at emerging market bonds, and I'd suggest that it's not just emerging market bond fund. You'd want to look for unhedged emerging market bond fund. And I say fund because like high yield, you'd want to buy them in a fund structure, not individual. You're not going to go buy that Argentinian government Mm -hmm. bond. You're going to buy a emerging market bond fund. I say buy an unhedged emerging market bond fund because if you buy a hedged one, you're really just focusing on the local market return on those bonds because the the currency fluctuations hedged away, it costs you money. Mm-hmm. Costs money to hedge, and I might want the unhedged for the currency appreciation. The dollar becomes weaker. Kind of to elaborate on that a little bit, you know, if you think about emerging market bonds, they can issue them in their local currency, and so the benefit is if you see rates there stabilize or fall, you get oftentimes very generous coupons. I mean, the the interest rate that you're seeing in oh, emerging yeah. markets is very high, and right. so you get the good coupon, maybe some stability with the price, if not appreciation if the rates fall. Plus, if it's in their local currency, if the dollar continues to weaken, that means that those other currencies are strengthening. And so you almost get this double benefit in terms of the return on the bond and the return on the currency. Because you can also then think about the emerging market bonds, if they're hedging it, it's very expensive to hedge the emerging market currencies just because of the volatility. An alternative is you can find dollar-denominated emerging market bonds. So a lot right. of emerging markets, they will issue bonds denominated in U.S. dollars. So you almost have those like three different options. So when you're sifting through right. the opportunities, but as Todd said, if you try to buy them individually, it can be very difficult. I know I personally tried to take a look through a, a brokerage account as far as if I want to buy like a Turkish bond or something like that. The bid-ask spreads, you could drive a truck through those, you know, and right. it's like if you try to buy them as an individual, it can be very expensive, not a lot of liquidity. You buy it and then you try to sell it. You might have to they have to farm it out for a bid. And uh, that yeah. can be a, a little difficult to sit through. 
And I'll just add one real quick point. The dollar-denominated emerging market bonds, this is kind of a boots-on-the-ground view, is that those are the ones that run into problems. So the risk level mm-hmm. is a little higher because they're denominated in dollars. And if you've got a, you know, rapidly depreciating, speaking of Turkish lira, uh, <laughs> situation, then, you know, you'd, you'd actually maybe want that local market bond. I know we were up against uh, time. I wanted to throw in another opportunity. Can I do that? For you, Todd, anything. Is, you know, I mentioned the last time S&P downgraded U.S. debt 2011, debt to GDP was 65%. Now deficits are $1.39 trillion, 169% of GDP, if I got that right. And, it, and I say it, it, there's an opportunity. The t- Trump tax breaks, quote-unquote, from the Tax Cuts Jobs Act 2017, expiring December 31st, 2025. We revert to higher tax levels. That's an opportunity for municipals. Mm-hmm. And there's also an implication for estate planning. I don't want to go there, but the opportunity for municipals that you 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 have a longer not doesn't have to be that longer. How far out is really December thirty first, twenty five? But you you have those muni bonds that might gain an additional premium uh, from the expiration. And I say that I tie the two together because you know is there a renewal of it when you're faced with those kind of deficits that you're you're going to keep the tax breaks in place when you need the revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, this could actually about. kind of nicely translate into what I think is maybe a longer term threat because the muni bonds, I agree, I'm not sure a lot of people are expecting that the top marginal tax rate goes from 37%, which is what it is now, to th- back to 39.6% uh, once the Tax Cuts and Job Act expires. And that makes owning the muni bonds that much more attractive. And we know municipalities are generally speaking in a very good place as far as with revenues and expenses. Longer term, I'm wondering if the federal government is going to try to push some of the spending at the federal level down to the state and local level. And if longer term, you know, what does that then mean for municipalities? So that's probably something we'll have to do a deep dive on uh, maybe next year or something like that. But kind of longer term threats, I'm, I'm kind of wondering as far as how do we get the fiscal house cleaned up? And is that going to put right. more burdens on states and municipalities? That's a really good angle that you brought up there. But And another one is, it's going to resurface, I'm sure, is the the idea of the federal government taxing municipalities, taxing federal bonds and federal government taxing municipal bonds, that you get into a situation, you know, and, and it goes back to, you know, 210 years of the Constitution, uh, the power to tax is the power to destroy, hence why, you know, municipal bond interest is tax-free. Uh, there might be an amendment. Or, I, I always said it's going to have to take an amendment to the Constitution to get at that, that interest revenue. What's your thoughts on that? So this comes up oftentimes uh, as far as whether or not that uh, tax exemption will go away. But um, honestly, so my reading of a lot of the law on it is that there's, I mean, the federal government could. Right. But the argument is, you know, are you then suddenly infringing on states' rights? as far as for them to levy taxes and then to also um, spend their money. So I, I think that there would it would be hotly contested. I remember when, do you remember Build America bonds? When yep. those were released, there was a big discussion at that point about whether or not the federal government could take away the tax exemption. And then I did this 
kind of news search to see has this popped up in the past and it has like in 1986 when there was tax reform it was discussed then categorically rejected and one of the ways that I kind of think about it is that uh, states and municipalities are very strong lobbyists, <laughs> especially when it comes to towards the federal government, that I just think that that power uh, more from that lobbying angle would keep that from ever becoming an issue. Although, you know, arguably, who are the biggest beneficiaries of the state tax exemption? It's the people at the highest marginal tax rate. And uh, so maybe the political winds are shifting a little bit. I don't know. Well, it is a threat. So while we're in that area, another one is, you know, I get some pushback on this, but the severe drought by caused by, <laughs> I laugh because the investment team always kids me about the El Nino, but it's reduced Mississippi water levels as well as the water level in the Panama Canal mm-hmm. creates problems for crop exports out of the U.S. and shippers going through the Panama Canal. We're going through a hundred year drought. It's really 90 years, but it was something that is brought up, and I follow Sean Hackett. I think he's great uh, commodity analyst. He's better than the weather man. You know, we might need global warming to raise the sea level. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I I've heard that before, and uh, honestly, so like the level of water in the Mississippi, I do remember reading about that all the way back at the beginning of the year as well, and it hasn't really seemed to interrupt shipping enough because there are alternatives. Um, you know, as far as maybe you just have to wait a little while or it gets rerouted through, you know, trucks or through trains or it's a different route. Right. The Panama Canal, right prior to the Panama Canal, we did have shipping from one coast to the other, but you just had to take a much longer route. Um, right. And so, but the idea of that, I, I, I do kind of like the cheeky nature of the idea that, hey, maybe global warming can save us yeah. from this because if you and have higher sea levels. Anyway. Well, yeah, I, I know you were joking about it, but uh, that's a very important point is there will be winners and there will be losers, you know, and I've done a lot of research on this as far as the economic sensitivity to sea level rises and temperature changes. And um, so as a whole, there might be like a cost, but just like with anything, there are winners and there are losers. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I stay in Wisconsin. You know, it's not just because of my family, but I figure if there's uh, with global warming, if the weather gets warmer here, we'll probably be a beneficiary right yeah. next to the one of the world's largest bodies of fresh water. It's not a bad place to be. <laughs> You know, um, I'll throw another one in there. You know, I'm kind of switching topics here. And feel free. I know you probably got a couple more threats. But wanted to mention economic data as it, as it shifts, comes in maybe, we're, you know, we're looking at retail sales. And we're talking about that before, heading into holiday season and so forth. And unemployment going to 3.9, going over to 4, how much higher. At the average lag time from rate increases that I've had figured uh, probably about a year ago, where the average time would would have it impact the economy the most in September of 23. Mm-hmm. And I emphasize the word average. Sometimes it's shorter, yep. sometimes longer. So it take, it's taken longer. But average is just that. And I always jokingly say, whenever you hear average, usually the number is going to come out anything but average. But for investors, you know, you can use options if you have size and approval, or we can, to monitor and pick up protection cheap but you, the problem is you can't keep rolling it because it, it does cost money but that that you're, there's ways to, to handle if that data is coming in week and we mm-hmm. have this sort of double dip down in earnings I, I think that uh, the earnings picture looks ha- actually halfway decent a- along with downward revisions and earnings going out next mm-hmm. year I understand that but it still is on a growth 
you know, I think we're coming out of a trough in earnings and we'll have growth. It just might not be as high as as the consensus believes. Yeah, it could just be some of those deviations around the trend, right, which is maybe causing uh, a little bit of angst. I know myself, I kind of feel that right now when I look at some of my quantitative signals and think about also then the narrative from the Fed. So you have to mix the quantitative with the qualitative. And I get the impression that the market is pricing in that the Federal Reserve is going to try to hold rates where they are, but start cutting maybe March or June. So Fed funds futures contracts indicate probably June for the first cut. And some people are calling for a rather aggressive rate cut path. Okay, but what if the Fed, because they're slow to react, they actually hold rates longer? So instead of June, if maybe it's September or December of next year, right? So the idea of higher for longer, these are nebulous terms. We've heard them all before, just like when the Fed said inflation was transitory. One of the problems is Chair Powell then tried to define transitory as six months, and that was foolish. But in terms of higher for longer, so how long might they hold rates where they are? And then if they hold it too long, will the path lower, the cuts be just as aggressive as the path higher? So I think that would be almost contrary to what the market is expecting, where it's rather short pause and a gradual decline of rates. What if it's a longer pause with a more aggressive path for rate rate cuts? Great point. What is our headline strength this week? The biggest one is good news is good news. Companies have been rewarded for reporting good guidance. Headline weakness? I'd say weak guidance for the holidays. Headline opportunity? I think genuine growth is scarce and commands a premium. And our headline threat? Well, as Brian said, longer pause, faster cuts. Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast. It's episode 79. Dr. Brian Jacobs and Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist at Annex Wealth Management, thank you. Thank you. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management, LLC, nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.